Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be back with you this morning. It's Wednesday, which means it's Bible study. So we're going to jump in here in just one second. I want to invite you all to think through some questions, some comments that you may have had in the last week to make sure that we can engage really as well as possible in this study. And so do remember that you can say hi to your friends uh, below if you're on YouTube or Facebook. And you can ask questions, make comments live while we are doing this study, and it will help me to really direct what it is that we are discussing, and questions will help me figure out what you all really want to know. And so do ask those questions, say hi to your friends, and we'll make this study really good. I want to remind you, too, that if you're not on our email list, we would love for you to be connected with us and get a reminder each Monday about what we will be studying with the links of how to view. And so do go to our website, stmichael.org slash RBS, Rector's Bible Study, so it's slash RBS, and email Meredith Rose and let her know that you'd like to be on our list and we will get you connected so that you get the reminders each week. We're going to start with a prayer. We all need a little bit of prayer today. And so we're going to begin. I want to invite you to kind of open your hearts and minds. Be thinking of the people in your lives, maybe even you, who need these prayers the most. Hold those people in your heart while we pray together. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together this morning that we have the privilege of studying the word that you have passed down from generation to generation. May that word inspire us, fill us up, help us to change the way we live, that we may turn closer and toward you each day, that we may be your hands and feet in the world you love. God, today we hold before you all those we know, those we love, who need your presence most, especially those who are ill, those who may be near death. May they always feel present with you, be surrounded by people that love them, people who remind them of your love for them. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Today, we are going to be looking at chapters five and six-ish. Uh, today and next week, we'll, like, we'll just kind of span chapters five through seven. So even though bookmark schedule says that it's going to be five through six today, we're kind of going to get five and into chapter six, but not all the way through six. Then we'll pick up the end of six and seven next week. And the big reason for that is because we need to have kind of a little happy nerd moment at the beginning of class today where we talk about the historic context of the Babylonian Empire and all the different people that are being talked about, especially in chapters five and six. So that's going to take a little bit of time, but I promise it's going to be good fun. So we're going to start today with a few questions from last week. We had one question that was asked a couple weeks ago that I just never quite got to, but today I think it seems... Um, like it's pretty valid um, and impacts some of the things we're going to be discussing. So a couple weeks ago, Diane asked um, about the people of Israel who had already been conquered by the Assyrians. How did they figure into the Babylonian exile? And that is an excellent question. Some of you may have heard the phrase or the term 
the lost tribes of Israel, that effectively talks about the 10 tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel is the part of the Israelite kingdom that was sacked by Assyria and taken really into exile in Assyria. The Assyrians are related sort of in with the Babylonians. I'm going to talk about that in about five minutes. But the tribes that were effectively taken into an early exile, what we mean when we talk about the exile of the southern kingdom. Um, but the exile of the northern kingdom is one that kind of loses the identity of the northern tribes of Israel. It's not that the people vanished. It's that their separate identity from the southern kingdom really goes away. It is very likely, although we really don't have evidence of this, that the people from the northern kingdom who had been taken into Assyria would have effectively been transferred to the Babylonian captivity. And so they would have joined with the Israelites that came out of the southern kingdom of Judah into the Babylonian empire. But like I said, we don't know that that happened, which is ultimately why the, uh, the idea of the lost tribes of Israel um, came to be. Because we effectively don't have much record of those tribes after the northern kingdom is sacked by the kingdom of Assyria. So there's the quick answer. There's a lot more that we could flesh out with that, um, but that's, I think, good enough for our purposes. That Hold that, because that's part of the sort of like history that we're going to do at the beginning of class today. But I do want to get to one other question from last week's study that I think is really important for us as disciples of Christ. Um, Madeline wrote in and asked about something that I said, and she quoted what I said back to me, which is always a scary thing. She says that I said, which, and I totally believe I said this, the good gifts that God has given us do not belong to us. That sounds like something I would say. Um, if I didn't say it, then I definitely think it. And Madeline says, if they don't belong to us, then that makes me kind of understand that we're sort of borrowing whatever we have from God. And she infers two ideas, which I think are really great. Um, the first is God expects us to take good care of whatever God has given us. I think that is totally true. We have been trusted with skills and abilities, with talents and treasures, and God wants us to care for those. But it's not just about us, right? We often think about what we have, our stuff. However, we are part of a bigger humanity, right? Humanity's been gifted by everything. That means the creation. And so we get planted right in the beginning of Genesis, this call to care for the world. That includes us. That includes our families. That includes our neighbors. That includes the actual world. So plants, animals, everything about it. Part of why we have a general strong ethic to care for the environment isn't because we just think it's pretty or like trees. It's really because from the very beginning at Genesis and then all the way throughout scripture, we are reminded that everything that we see is created by God, that God loves 
what he has created and that we are tasked with, called to care for everything. So that's very, very local, what we own, what we have, the skills and treasures we can, we bear. And it's also very global, quite literally global. We are given charge to care for everything that we see and that nothing we see, nothing that exists is apart from God. And we are really the caretakers and we have inherited all of this from people who came before us. We will pass on all of this to the people who come after us. So it's really better that we consider ourselves as caretakers of our gifts, not owners, because in effect, we're here for this little bit of time and we will pass this along while we are here. We are tasked with caring for everything that God has trusted us with. The second inference that Madeline makes is that since these good gifts never actually belong to us, we should be willing to give these gifts back to God or give these gifts away as part of God's purposes. That is 100% right. And that is part of why we as Christians talk about things like tithing or pledging or stewardship of our time, talent, and treasure. It's not really about running an organization. Yeah, sure, we come together as a church, and St. Michael is definitely one of those organizations, those churches, where we pool our resources and our gifts together in order to do something bigger than we can do on our own. But it's never, giving is never about the organization. Giving is about us. Giving is about each of us really believing, faithfully believing that what we have is only ours to care for and that it really belongs to God and that what we have should be given back in some way that glorifies God, that gives gratitude to God. And it is in that giving back that we actually release our grip on all the stuff that the world tells us we own. That ownership can be a real problem. That ownership can, you know, oftentimes be simple and innocent, but that ownership can get in the way of being the kind of faithful person that God calls us to be. And we're going to see that. I mean, y'all, if you have not heard that ownership can get in the way in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, then I hope you will hear about that with Belshazzar and then Darius and on and on. The book of Daniel, one of the critical ideas here is that faithfulness goes beyond just words takes action. And if we are not faithful in our action, if we're not faithful in our giving, then we begin to pervert this idea that all the stuff we have is only ours. It's not. All the stuff that we have belongs to God. And yeah, I once heard someone say, God gives us everything we have and he lets us keep 90% of it which is sort of a cheeky way of referencing the biblical tithe, but it goes beyond a computation, right? Ah, 10%, that's a great target. But one of the things that I like to say is we are called to give and we are called to give enough so we feel the giving. The biblical level of a tithe, which is 10%, is a lovely target. But if giving 4%, is a real stretch and you have to change the way you live just to even give 4%, then actually that's a pretty good gift. If on the other hand, you give 10% and it's nothing, you don't have to change anything about the way you live. 
you are hardly ever even reminded of the 10% gift? Well then, I'm sorry to say, 10% is not enough. The point of the giving is not about the actual dollars or not about the actual time. The point of the giving is that we give enough to where it is self-sacrificial. We give enough so that we actually have to make a decision that our faith is in God because the giving is so much that it kind of makes us a little uncomfortable. That's really when the giving becomes transformative. That's really when the giving becomes faithful. And it's in that kind of giving that we make sure that we do everything that we are able to do to put our eye, to put our anchor and our rootedness in God alone, not in whatever the world tells us is important. I think that it's important for us in this Bible study to not just go through this intellectual exercise of knowing historic stuff or knowing certain verses or being able to interpret passages of the Bible. All that's important. But none of that's really useful. It's all really for nothing if it doesn't actually impact the way we live. So here's an invitation to allow a real deep biblical truth to actually impact the way you live. That is really our discipleship. And I am very much preaching. So we're going to turn the sermon off and keep moving because, you know, I don't want to spend all the time doing all this because the next thing we want to do, well, first off, I'll say thank you for those great questions. Keep them coming and we will parse those things out. And I hope that it's helpful to everyone who's watching. Now we come to perhaps my favorite part of the entire lesson today, which is the moment of nerd. We're going to talk about history. And I want you to just hang with me. If history is not your bag, then don't worry because I love history and I will try to make this as simple and contextual as possible so that it is as helpful as possible. Okay. What we are dealing with in the book of Daniel happens in and after the great Babylonian exile, which means knowing about the Babylonian empire is critical to understand how the exile fits in history. So I want to take a minute, it'll be a few minutes, to kind of unpack where the Babylonian empire fits in that sort of Near East ancient history. Okay, so we are at this point in time about 6th century BCE, right? That's really where the bulk of the Babylonian exile takes place. Um, and remember, BCE is before the Common Era, which is a little different than sort of the before Christ that people used to say with BC. Um, and so I, I just use BCE. So before the Common Era, which begins with the life of Christ, about six, 500 to 600 years before that is when the Israelites are in exile in Babylon. The Babylonian Empire rises and falls, as does multiple other empires in that region. I want to name that those empires overlap in many different ways and that the tribal and ethnic unity that empire might imply is really not true. Empires are based on strength and you are effectively only as strong as you're able to put down your opponents. We see in the book of Daniel, 
reference to the Chaldeans. At this time, the Chaldeans are the strongest tribe. They, the Chaldeans are one of many tribes within the Babylonian Empire umbrella, and they are at this point the strongest of the tribes, which is where we get Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a Chaldean, and Nebuchadnezzar is effectively the number one leader of the number one tribe under the umbrella of the Babylonian Empire. You can almost imagine this like um, if you know of a parliamentary system of government, like Britain, India, and other places, parliamentary systems are different than ours because you have lots of parties that come together and they have ministers that make up their parliament. And then those parties begin to form alliances. And then from those alliances comes one number one minister, who they call the prime minister. That minister is effectively the same as all the others, but they represent the strongest group or alliance under a bigger umbrella. Nebuchadnezzar's sort of like the prime minister of the Babylonian empire. Not really. He really is the king or the emperor. Um, but in a sense, it's helpful for us to understand that there are lots of tribes jockeying for control and influence. And at this point in time, the Chaldeans really have it. Nebuchadnezzar is part of a long history of Chaldean rulers that have risen and fallen over time. And one that is really critical from more than a thousand years before Nebuchadnezzar is someone you know, Hammurabi. So Hammurabi is also a Chaldean and is connected to Nebuchadnezzar within that tribe and ethnic group. And so as you can see, those groups rise and fall over time. And right now the Chaldeans have risen. The Babylonian Empire is under the control of the Chaldeans, and Nebuchadnezzar is their leader. In addition to the Chaldeans, the Assyrians were a group of people who also had an empire. And the, Chal and the Assyrians were controlled very similarly by multiple tribal groups. And one of the number one tribal groups within the Assyrian Empire, or under the Assyrian umbrella, were the Medes. We see in chapter 6, Darius the Mede is really part of the older Assyrian leadership. And when Belshazzar is overthrown by the Medes, it's not just that the Chaldeans are overthrown by the Medes. It's almost as if, or in reality it is, the Babylonians are being overtaken by the Assyrians. That's really critical for us to understand because the reason the Babylonians were able to overtake the southern kingdom of Judah is because they had overtaken the Assyrians for a time. But just like any other unstable situation, you've got these groups that may be in power for one generation, but the next generation can seize power back. That's more or less what happens under this Babylonian empire. Now, if we go specifically to the Babylonians, to the Chaldeans, what we see is that on Nebuchadnezzar's death, there is a little bit of jockeying of power. Nebuchadnezzar is followed by his son, who is then followed by on and on. And Nabonidus, right? These are great names. Nabonidus takes over the kingdom and Nabonidus is an Assyrian. Nabonidus' son, 
never becomes king, but his son is Belshazzar. So the story that happens in chapter five of the book of Daniel is about the last king of Babylon's son, who is never actually king. He's simply a regent or a governor. It is Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, who is the last person in charge of Babylon, we'll say, before the Persians come in and sack them all. Cyrus the Great, who was the emperor of Persia, comes in and attacks the empire of Babylon and overtakes them. You might be asking, if you have read ahead for today, where Darius fits in. Darius is not in any historic record. So as the story of Daniel goes, we have Nebuchadnezzar, then we have Belshazzar, then we have Darius before Cyrus of Persia comes in. The problem is Darius doesn't seem to exist. There's really no historic evidence of Darius's existence or his role in leadership at this point. Just bookmark that, hold it, and we will discuss that a bit more um, when we get to chapter six. So the, really the last thing I want to say to you all is that Chaldean, although a tribe and an ethnic group at this point in time during the exile, really loses its ethnic identity. And the, the name Chaldean begins to take on the identity of an astrologer or a mystic or a diviner, really someone like Daniel. And Chaldean becomes synonymous with someone who can interpret the divine or the or interpret God's purposes, which is why as you read through the book of Daniel, you see that often there's a list of people, you know, astrologers, diviners, mystics, magicians, and Chaldeans as if Chaldean is just like magician or diviner. That is one of those little narrative details that help scholars to place the actual writing or the finalization of the book of Daniel way after the exile itself. Because what the writer who ultimately wrote all this story down is unwittingly incorporating into the writing is the long-developed definition of what Chaldean actually meant, which it would not have meant in the moment of Daniel's, uh, of the Babylonian exile, when Daniel was actually living. And so that's just one of those little nuggets that when I say things like scholars think that it was written or finalized or whatever, there's one of those little moments where people say, why would the Chaldeans be part of this list? Well, because a few hundred years after the exile, Chaldean had become synonymous with magician or diviner. Meaning, when this book was really finished, that had already happened. So it helps us to see that this book was written hundreds of years after the exile itself, or at least was finished hundreds of years after the exile itself. Okay, last little nugget before we actually get into chapter five. You will note that Belshazzar is the Babylonian name for Daniel. Belshazzar is the current king slash regent of Babylon in chapter five. Now, you probably would pronounce his name Belshazzar, 
But Belshazzar and Belshazzar sound really similar. And so just like Elijah and Elisha, we tend to tweak the pronunciation of the second name. So when you're talking about the prophet Elijah and his student Elisha, we tend to say Elijah and Elisha. That way you really know who we're talking about. So today, even though the regent king's name is Belshazzar, I'm going to call him Belshazzar so that you know when I'm talking about Daniel and when I'm talking about not Daniel. Got it? All right. Now we are, we still have the majority of the class left, which is good. Um, I often am afraid I talk too long. So we're going to actually get into chapter five now. The scope of today's lesson is going to take us into chapter six, and there are three sections. The first section is the writing on the wall. The second section is Daniel's interpretation. And the third section is the plot against Daniel. All right. Three sections today, the writing on the wall, Daniel's interpretation, and the plot against Daniel. So let's jump in with the writing on the wall. Turn to chapter five. We're going to start on verse one. Here we go. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Jump to verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall of the royal palace next to the lampstand. The king was watching the hand as it wrote. Then the king's face turned pale and his thoughts terrified him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck and rank third in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar became greatly terrified and his face turned pale and his lords were perplexed. We'll pause there. So as I noted, we are at the near the end of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar is described as the king, yet we have no proof he was ever king. So we're going to call him a governor or a regent just so that we're clear about his role. And uh, we know that he was the son of Nabonidus, who was the last actual king of the Babylonian Empire. Now, what's interesting here is that there's a reference to Belshazzar being the the son of Nebuchadnezzar, they almost certainly had no biological relation. However, as we know from other ancient empires, one of the ways that you claim authority is by being the son of the great king, right? So you see that with, say, Augustus and Julius Caesar, right? Augustus was not Caesar's son, but not only did Augustus claim this to be son of Caesar, but he also claimed the title of Caesar. We see a similar thing here with Belshazzar claiming to be the son of Nebuchadnezzar, because that gives him a lot more prestige and authority, even though there's no biological evidence that that was true. The queen will now come in and the queen will say, hey, by the way, there's a person who can interpret this. The queen who comes in and says that even though all your people can't interpret this, there's a guy, Daniel, 
who Nebuchadnezzar, your father, always relied on for good interpretation. This queen is likely not Belshazzar's wife. This queen is likely an older widow, almost like a queen mother sort of person, and could theoretically be the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it's probably most likely that she would have been the widow of Nabonidus, who was actually Belshazzar's father, but I'm not sure. Um, and scholars aren't sure. And so we're going to go with not Belshazzar's wife, but someone who would have had authority to speak in the court and would have had the kind of institutional memory to have known of Daniel. So the feast that they're having, let's have a moment there. This feast is kind of like a victory feast. You know, this rings very much like what a person would do, what a, what a ruler or a uh, general or whomever would do after a great victory, where you've got a thousand people around and you're drinking until you're really too drunk to do anything productive. And it's a strange moment because there's really no evidence here in this in scripture of why this party would have been taking place. Now, why I bring up this party is because it gives us a glimpse into the character of Belshazzar. We're going to discover at the end of the chapter that Belshazzar is overthrown by Darius the Mede. Of course, not only do, well, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have any evidence that Darius ever did that. Um, however, we do know that the Persians are a growing empire. At this point, Cyrus the Great was expanding the Persians' influence and empire all over that Near East, the Middle East. And Persia, anchored in Iran today, would have been expanding beyond its borders with a lot of success. There is absolutely reason to think Belshazzar would have known about the Persian expansion. And it is entirely likely that Belshazzar would have understood that there was no way they were going to actually be able to resist the existential threat of Persia. So, is it possible that Belshazzar is throwing this feast as a distraction? That Belshazzar is basically getting all of the people drunk so that they will forget that they're really sliding into a difficult place, that they are effectively not able to defend themselves against this growing threat from Persia. And rather than stress out about not knowing what to do, rather than arguing about ideas that probably wouldn't have worked, well, let's just get drunk. And then Belshazzar has an easier time toward the end of his governorship than he would have had he tried to raise up a military to resist the Persians. Now, this is a moment that is important in the story of Daniel because Daniel ultimately will interpret the writing on the wall in a way that, how do I want to put this? In a way that I, I will say sobers Belshazzar to the awareness of his real problem. Now in the story we just saw during the party, there's this creepy hand that kind of appears out of nowhere and begins writing on the wall. By the way, 
the phrase, you know, read the writing on the wall comes from this story. I assume you already figured that out. But this is where we get that writing on the wall phrase. As the hand writes on the wall, it's obviously writing something legible, but they can't understand it. Perhaps the writing on the wall is a language they don't speak. Perhaps the writing on the wall is a language that is written such in a way that it doesn't look like the spoken language. So here's an interesting kind of fact. Ancient Hebrew misses consonants. So what you have is you've got all of these ancient Hebrew does not have spaces, punctuation, or consonants. So that actually interpreting and translating is really difficult because you have to really know the language to figure out what it is that the writers are trying to say to you. It's almost as if you were to take English. Have you all seen it where words are completely jumbled except the first and last letter and people who know English well can just read it without any problem, even though every word is spelled incorrectly. Same kind of thing. If you were to take, say, all of the vowels out of all of the English words in a sentence, most of us can probably still read that sentence. Now, are we 100% sure what that sentence says? No, we can't be because the words aren't complete. But are we probably 90% sure within context of a wider story what that sentence would say? Yes. And so hats off to all the people who first translated the Hebrew Bible, because that was no small feat. What we do here is we begin to read into what the writing on the wall, Belshazzar's response, and what we know will happen in order to try and get at that more profound teaching for us as disciples of Jesus, why we actually do Bible study. And what we see is that Belshazzar is prideful, egotistical, fearful, and he is doing nothing helpful for the Babylonians. He's not using his power and authority in any way that is constructive to actually address this massive existential threat that is certainly on the horizon, right? Maybe the Persians aren't going to attack today or tomorrow or in a month, but in a year, in a couple years, are they coming? Yes, they're coming. And Belshazzar is simply drinking his way through the end of the empire. It's a little unfortunate. And God wants Belshazzar to realize the error of his ways. And that's how we set up Daniel's interpretation of the writing on the wall. All right, I am going to pause there. And just as a reminder, I would love for you to ask questions. So put those questions in the comment field, either below or to the side. Um, Meredith is monitoring those comment fields. And if you can't comment, if you're watching this on live stream from our website, then feel free to email Meredith because she's got her email open. She can send me those questions as we go. And if you've got a question, be brave, be courageous, send us those questions so we can help direct how we do this study to be most helpful. So while those questions come in, right, while the questions come in, we're going to go on to the second section. This is Daniel's interpretation. So as we know, Daniel's called in to interpret the writing on the wall. 
Let's start with verse 21. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society and his mind was made like that of an animal. His dwelling was with the wild asses. He was fed grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God was, has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and sets it whomever he will. And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, whose bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose power is your very breath, and to whom belong all your ways, you have not honored. So, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made concerning him that he should rank third in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, Daniel's called in to interpret the writings. The interpretation is pretty straightforward, so we won't spend a lot of time on that. Here's the interpretation. You've been judged, and you've been deemed wanting, which is like the most Southern way of saying, like, you're really terrible. So you've been judged, and you've been deemed wanting, and the United Kingdom of Babylon will be divided between the powers of the Medes and the Persians. Remember what I said earlier, the Medes represent the Assyrians. So the Babylonians who had once overcome the Assyrians are now going to be divided between the Assyrians and the Persians, which again, we have no evidence that the Assyrians or the Medes really did any of this. In history, the Persians just conquered everything. So take this as story, not history. Now this interpretation is important for us um, because this section, in this section, Daniel lays out an interpretation of God's actions, and that's critical for us who are learning God every day, right? We are in our perfect, in our imperfection and our messiness as humans, we are constantly learning something new about God that I hope impacts the way that we live. And so this is one of those moments where Belshazzar is called to task. Daniel effectively says, hey, listen, Nebuchadnezzar went through all of this, right? Nebuchadnezzar was an egomaniac. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the best thing ever, that no one could do any better than him, that he was everything. And God humbled him. God sent him out. He lost his mind. He lived with the animals. And it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before God, repented, and turned toward God, that God reestablished him as a good leader. This is an interesting way of understanding what we talked about at the very beginning of today's study, which is everything we are given comes from God. We often mistake that when we say 
what we are given comes from God, we are thinking of tangible stuff or maybe money. It's much more than that. It's our skills and our abilities. Paired with opportunities, we basically can thank everything. We can thank God for everything. So some of us, I think, often find ourselves sort of in the ditch of, well, I am actually quite smart. I am actually quite able. I am a very hard worker. And so I earn that or I deserve that. And we forget that the abilities and skills that we are given in order to achieve and succeed come from God first. And effectively, Daniel's saying to Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar made this mistake. And then Nebuchadnezzar saw the error of his ways. He repented and he began to praise God. Belshazzar should have known all of this. And yet, Belshazzar's making the same mistakes that Nebuchadnezzar made. Belshazzar hasn't learned anything about what has gone on before him. And so rather than learning from the wisdom of the mistakes made by your predecessors, Belshazzar simply making the same mistakes again. And Daniel comes in and says, you know, honestly, God expects that you would have been better than this, that you would not be making the same mistakes over again, that you would have learned from the past, learned from your history, so you don't, mis- you don't make the same mistakes again, right? We say that all the time, even today, right? We have to learn from history so we don't remake the same mistakes. Belshazzar is remaking the same mistakes. And so God is going to deal much more harshly with Belshazzar. God has, in fact, judged him to be wanting. And the judgment means Belshazzar is going to lose everything. Interestingly, Daniel is setting Belshazzar up to be the archetype of our own failures. We, I, I think we should read this story in a way that pokes at us, that kind of stings a little bit because we make mistakes that we should have learned not to make, right? Whether we've made mistakes in the past and we should have learned from those mistakes or people in before us have made mistakes and we didn't learn from them and so we're making the same mistakes. It, that's a hard lesson, y'all. It is not easy for us to admit that we are making mistakes we should know better not to make. That's a really hard learning. The other thing that's important here is that it gives us a glimpse into how the ancient Israelites, uh, really how the ancient Jewish people understood God's idea of judgment. God actually challenges people to repent. And when repentance doesn't happen, God's judgment is passed and God's punishment for that judgment is executed. Now, that's an interesting thing because we who have actually inherited the clarity of Jesus have refined that idea a bit. I want to invite you to hang with me for one big idea. As Christians, there are two very big fundamental ways of understanding how God works in the world. One of those ways 
is that God judges wrongdoing and then God's judgment is articulated in punishment for wrongdoing. And we hear that kind of stuff spouted off whenever there's a disaster or a tragedy, right? We heard that about like Hurricane Katrina, or we heard that about the tsunami in Southeast Asia and on and on. Somebody, some Christian preacher or teacher will inevitably get up and say, wag their finger and say, those people are bad. And God's anger and God's judgment has been dealt out on those bad people. That is a solid Old Testament way of understanding God. However, as I've said before, we who are Christian, we who anchor and root our faith identity in Jesus have to begin with Jesus. And if what Jesus taught goes against what is learned and taught in the Old Testament, we got to go with Jesus. That's just the way it is. If we count ourselves as disciples of Jesus, we got to start with Jesus. Okay, so let's then bring in Jesus here and see what Jesus says about these sorts of things. Jesus teaches repentance. Absolutely. Jesus says over and over again, repent. So that kind of teaching is consistent with the Old Testament where God calls for repentance. And repent literally means to turn. And so both in the Old Testament and Jesus' teachings, we see that God calls us to turn toward God, away from all the stuff of the world that lead us astray. We are called to repent, to actually turn toward God. However, Jesus teaches with repentance that there is a profound generosity and self-sacrifice in repentance. That God's love for us is so huge and so unconditional that there isn't this punitive discipline that we see that people used to understand God as de dealing out after judgment. Jesus tells us something totally different. Jesus gives us a glimpse into God's way of being, which, yes, causes us to repent, but then, after that call for repentance, there is love and there is grace. That amazing grace of God means that we have a new revelation, quite literally the New Testament that we receive in Jesus changes the way that we understand God and should change the way that the Old Testament faithful people understood God. These people were doing the best that they could. They just simply didn't have this revelation from Jesus that God's presence on earth in the person of Jesus helps understand better what God had been doing in time. So the way that people interpreted God's actions before Jesus need to be changed after Jesus. And that's when grace comes in. And that means that when Jesus implores his followers to repent and turn away from pride and fear and self-centered actions, he's doing the same for us. He's calling us to turn away from those things, not because we should be afraid of God, 
but because God offers us something so much better, so much better, that kind of profound, transformative love that grace affords is so much better than anything this world can offer. That is effectively what Daniel says Belshazzar is missing. Belshazzar does not heed that warning. God passes judgment and Belshazzar loses his kingdom. He is killed that night. Killed, not just dies. So it is relatively clear that part of God's judgment is that Belshazzar loses everything. And Darius the Mede takes over. That's what the story says. And we can interpret that transition moment as not perhaps God's direct action, but as a result of Belshazzar's resistance to let go of his ego and his pride and his self-righteousness in order to humbly follow God's direction. That brings us to the end of the second section. So I haven't seen any questions yet. No questions? Um, that must mean that I am being so very super clear, which I just doubt is the case. Um, so definitely send some questions in because I've said a whole lot of stuff that I assume can be a little confusing. Um, so don't let a question go unanswered because we can clarify all of this stuff as we go. We've come to the third section, the last section of today's study, and it's really the beginning of chapter six, the first dozen or so verses. Turn with me to chapter six, verse one, and we're going to look at the plot against Daniel. So end of chapter five, Belshazzar is gone. Darius the Mede is now in charge. And as I noted, the Medes are Assyrians, but they are now in charge of the Babylonian empire. Verse six, I'm sorry, chapter six, verse one. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents, including Daniel. To these, the satraps gave account so that the king might suffer no loss. Soon, Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. Okay, we'll pause there before we get to the actual plot. So what we see here is that Daniel has been put in charge of a region. Satraps are effectively governors. So if you can imagine it, they're like mayor's governors, and there are over a hundred of these. And over those, Darius has put three presidents. Da uh, Daniel is one of those presidents. And so Daniel is effectively very high up in Darius's court structure and hierarchy. And what we see here in the story is that the nature of politics is such that when you don't get credit, when you don't get the love, when you don't get the esteem and the praise, you get jealous. And what we see here is that the other presidents and the other satraps are jealous of Daniel, not because they're somehow being punished or they're somehow losing anything, but because Daniel is getting something that they're not getting and their jealousy begins to cloud their judgment. And rather than just simply being grateful for what they have, being grateful for being able to do what they do well, they begin to plot against Daniel. 
as they begin to plot against Daniel, first thing they do is they do a little oppo research. They go out and they try and figure out what Daniel is doing wrong. Much to their dismay, <laughs> Daniel isn't doing anything wrong. Daniel is, in fact, doing everything by the book. He's following all the rules, all the laws. He is completely above board and upstanding, which really makes them mad. So the only thing they can do is change the rules. If Daniel's going to follow all the rules, they need to make sure they create a rule that they know Daniel will not follow. And so they go to Darius. Jump back with me. Verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that those who ever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish this interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document. What is interesting here is that the rule that they want to change actually sets Daniel up to put his faith on the line. Up to this point, the implication here is Darius is letting everybody worship however they want so long as they do the good work, right? So Daniel's got this job. He's able to do good work and worship however he wants so long as he gets the job done. The only weakness that these other presidents and satraps see in Daniel is his commitment to God. So if they actually change the rule and say that you can't worship anyone but Darius, then Daniel's going to be in trouble. And they know they can go accuse him of heresy and accuse him of breaking the law in order to have him executed if the law changes. Now, what's interesting here is that Darius seems to be a decent person. Darius seems to be ruling well, allowing people to do what they do and basically rewarding them for good work, right? Daniel was about to get this promotion because he's solid and doing the right stuff. One might think that Darius would be able to resist this ridiculous request, except Darius is in power and Darius has absolute power. And as we've discussed already in this Daniel study, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Darius is no exception. His humanity, his temptation toward absolute power has begun to corrupt his mind. And even if he was a good guy before this, now Darius is being corrupted by his power, his ego, his pride. And when these people come, his people come and say, hey, pass a law that says you can't worship anyone but you, Darius, rather than saying, that's a dumb law, that's going to undermine my best worker, Darius gets a little hint, a little sniff of the kind of power and authority that only God deserves. And he agrees. And Darius signs this edict that changes the rules. And when he signs this edict that changes the rules, Daniel is then teed up to get in trouble. Now, Daniel is faithful to God and to God alone. We know, just as the other presidents and satraps know, that Daniel is going to resist this new law. So Daniel is going to receive the judgment of Darius next week. 
So we really in- reached the end of our study today because I, f- I don't have time to go really into the lion's den. And I see that we've gotten one question from Sylvia. And Sylvia says, I understand as Christians, if we repent and turn toward the Lord, we experience his grace. But is there judgment and discipline if there is no repentance? Good question, Sylvia. This is what I will do. I will use a story from the Gospels to help answer this. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 19? In Matthew 19, we have a young, rich man, sometimes called the rich young ruler, even though that's not quite clear, who comes to Jesus after Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing, and he knows Jesus is something special. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what else must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, have you followed all the commandments? And the young man says, yes, I followed all those commandments my entire life. And he says, are you a good, generous person? Yes, I've done all of those things right. And Jesus says, if you wish for eternal life, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And what happens? The rich young man hears what Jesus says, turns and walks away in grief for he had many possessions. This is one of those moments in the Gospels that can be crushing to us because we have many possessions. And it goes well beyond just the stuff we own, the tangible stuff. It's possessions like our skills and our abilities and everything we are. Jesus says very plainly, repent, turn toward God, give everything you have in following God, and you'll receive eternal life. This young man basically doesn't do that. He doesn't quite say no, literally, but his response is negative. So at that point, we might say in the Old Testament economy, well, he has just refused to repent. And so perhaps he will experience judgment and punishment and discipline. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't do two important things. Jesus doesn't go chase after that young man. Jesus doesn't say, okay, okay, okay. So I said everything, but I don't really mean everything. I just mean most things or like however much you want to give. Not everything, just whatever. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is not desperate here. Jesus is giving him the complete truth. He either chooses to follow the truth or not. We need to learn from this because we in our society, especially, let's just stop. I'll stay in my lane and say in churches. In churches, we are constantly wishing to chase after people who somehow find that they've been wronged or that they have been judged or mistreated or they don't like something that happens. And oftentimes, very objectively speaking, they're misbehaving. They have sacrificed the relationships that actually bind us as Christian disciples. And in doing so, expect that we will chase after them and that we will then permit misbehavior or permit undermining of relationships just so that they will stay. Jesus does not chase after this young man because he has said, this is what's true. Say yes or don't. And here's the other thing that doesn't happen. 
This young man is not punished. He does not receive some sort of harsh discipline because he chose not to give his all. Repent, turn to God, and give everything over. And if we don't do that, here is an example in the life of Christ where God doesn't punish us, but I think God grieves. I think God is sad. I think God wants very much that we would love him back because he loves us unconditionally. And yet we have the choice not to. We have the choice to say no. And that choice means that we effectively live apart from God. And perhaps that's the worst punishment of all. All right, everybody, time is up. I thank you again for joining me on Bible Study Day. It's really one of my favorite things that I do, and I couldn't do or do this without you. And so as you have questions or comments, please send them. We will check the comment thread later on next week uh, before the next study or send Meredith an email, and we will make sure that we can incorporate all the questions and comments we can. As for now, I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy. God bless you all. Bye.